I'm glad to be here with you all this evening. It's a, quite a full house for a Lord's Supper service, and it's great to see that we're having more and more join us each month. The week before classes started my senior year at the University of Texas, the costliest natural disaster in the history of our country struck the Gulf Coast. In August of 2005, Hurricane Katrina obliterated much of the Louisiana and Mississippi coast. And in October of that year, the campus ministry that I was involved with took about 70 of us uh, to Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, to help in the cleanup process. We worked for three straight days in people's homes where the floods had taken everything that was on the floor in their houses up into the ceiling, brought the ceiling down on top of them where it then sat mildewing for months. So we went in with masks and ripped out everything uh, in these homes, getting them down to the studs. It was gross, gross work. It was good work so that these people could begin to rebuild. And on the last day of that work, we had sandwiches around 11 in the morning for our lunch, and we worked through the afternoon, and then we packed up and hit the road in the early evening. We left before dinner time, and we hadn't eaten since 11, and we were already hungry, but we were just going to find something on the road to eat. Uh, we drove for probably what was only about an hour, but it seemed like an eternity. Uh, it was the hungriest I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, the guys that were in the car with me, we were all frustrated. We were all short-tempered with each other. We were getting downright angry and sinful in this Ford Explorer. But finally, we saw one of those green signs that, on the highway that shows you what restaurants are going to be at each exit. And we saw what was surely a gift from heaven, CeCe's Pizza. <laughs> Buffet, even. Uh, next exit. And to this day, that dinner at CeCe's Pizza has to rank in the top five greatest meals of my life. <laughs> but the thing is, within a few hours, even though we had just eaten at an all-you-can-eat buffet, a few hours later in southeast Texas, we had to stop at a gas station for candy and snacks again because we were hungry again. Food is a funny thing. It is now and it was in Jesus' day. Even if you go to the nicest, nicest steak restaurant in town, it will only be a few hours later that you get hungry again. It's not just because of the relative terribleness of the food at CeCe's, right? Food is a funny thing. In our text tonight, John 6, the people have their bellies temporarily satisfied by Jesus only to get hungry again. Jesus will point, point them and us to the spiritual realities which lie behind our natural appetites and then offer a surprising solution. We'll see Jesus teach four things about the reality of hunger, and all of these teaching will come in ascending order in terms of their shock value. So he starts out with a provoking teaching. In the beginning of John 6, verse 4, John tells us that the Passover is at hand. This, of course, is the annual feast to remind Israel of God's delivering them out of Egyptian slavery and how he has preserved them through the wilderness. So the Passover should be the framework for this entire chapter. And then we read how Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000 with bread and fish. And as a result of this, in verses 14 and 15, the people think that Jesus is now the Moses-like prophet, which Moses predicted would come in Deuteronomy 18, and they want to make Jesus their king. 
all because he gave them cc's, right? Just some bread, and they want to make him their king. Verse 24 tells us that the crowd gets in boats to follow Jesus across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And then we read later on in verse 59 that they find him across the Sea of Galilee. They find him at a synagogue in Capernaum. And when they find him, Jesus answers them this in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Before Jesus speaks, John doesn't tell us why the crowds were in such a hurry and were so uh, determined to find him, why they crossed the sea. Maybe they really wanted to hear more of his teaching. Maybe they really, really wanted to make him their king. It looks like they possibly had said they wanted to see more signs from him. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, tells them in verses 26 and 27, No, no, you haven't come to me for any of those reasons. The only, reasons you have come, the only reason you've come to me is to have your bellies filled again. Perhaps you think that you're being really sacrificial, leaving your work for a day to cross the sea and find me. But don't be deceived. The real reason you're here is because you want me to make you comfortable. You saw in me someone who could remove all discomfort in your life, and you came to me for more of that. You're convincing yourselves that you're coming to see the power of God at work, but really you're just coming for an easy and carefree life. Your God is your belly, and you are led by your appetites. Whoa. Jesus doesn't pull any punches at the beginning of his new teaching to them in Capernaum. But then he seems to say in verse 27, but how's that going for you, really? How's it going for you to have your belly filled Because think about it, Galilean Jews, the food that you eat, even the bread that I miraculously provided, it spoils, it perishes, it goes bad, it doesn't leave you ultimately satisfied. You get hungry again. Obviously, you came to me again. So instead of working so hard and leaving your work for a day to come find me to give you more bread... The wiser thing would be for you to pursue food that doesn't perish, food that doesn't go bad, food that will leave you ultimately satisfied. That's something that they needed to hear that day in Capernaum, and that is certainly something that we need to hear in Albuquerque today. How often do we seek a Messiah who will give us a quick fix, who will take away any discomfort that we may have, who will... Like a genie, give us whatever we want, who will fill our bellies and then send us on our way. How often do we seek after things that ultimately will never satisfy? Jim Carrey of Ace Ventura and Mask Lore has somewhat famously said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so they will know that it's not the answer. Now, I don't know if Jim Carrey has found any answers or whether he's just kind of like Solomon who, as a man who's had everything, has looked around and seen that it hasn't left him satisfied. Uh, 
but he seems to know that since he has everything uh, and was still left wanting, he seems to know something about the things that we pursue that we maybe don't. Since we don't have it all, we're still convinced that the next thing will satisfy. I'm not satisfied with my job right now, but surely after the next promotion or the next raise or the next job altogether, then I'll be happy. I'm not satisfied in my marriage right now, but surely if I would just be free from it, I would be. I'm not satisfied in this house, but surely another 5,000 square feet, that ought to do the trick, right? I'm not satisfied by my weekly or perhaps even nightly pornography, but surely the next time will be worth it, won't it? If I could just get those grades, that car, that bottle or drug again, that body, if I could get that approval or recognition from just that one person, then surely I'd be happy. Jesus is addressing the crowd's desire for satisfaction, specifically here in their desire for food. And while some of us need to hear this admonishment, to be careful in looking for satisfaction merely in food, surely all of us need to hear his admonishment to be careful in seeking satisfaction in temporary things that were never meant to satisfy. Jesus has not come to be a genie. He's not come to take away all and any physical discomfort. He's come to provide something far more than we'd ever imagined. So, verse 27, Jesus says, Stop pursuing all of these temporary things. Instead, pursue the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So while Jesus does initially give a provoking new understanding of hunger and satisfaction, he then moves on in an unexpected way with an unexpected teaching. The people seem to respond favorably to this new teaching. Okay, we're down for that kind of food, they seem to say. What must we do to get it? Where do we find it? But more importantly, how much is it going to cost us? Like, what do we have to do to get this food from God? Is going to synagogue regularly good enough? Do I, is just the annual trip to, to the temple good enough? What do we have to do? Jesus says, no. This is the work of God. This is what you must do, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 29, Jesus says, This is all you must do. Believe in him whom God has sent. The righteousness of God is something that cannot be attained by working. Why? Because our very lives are at odds with God. Our very lives are against his kingdom. Our sin is in so great of worship of the created things rather than the creator that we can never find righteousness in our own, of our own. So what's the solution according to Jesus? Believe in the one whom God has sent. And the people must have been responding like, did he, did he just, I, I think, is he talking about, I think he's talking about himself. Is he talking about himself? All right, that's cool. We trusted in Moses when he provided, provided manna, the bread from heaven. So we can trust and believe in you too, Jesus. But just, just a second, just to be sure, just to be sure we, we can trust God's prophets, we can trust God's man, but just to be sure that you're God's prophet. Verse 30, what sign do you do, Jesus, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Evidently, Jews in Jesus' day understood that there was 
a great heavenly storehouse of manna, which God would open daily to provide for the people during Moses' day. Daily, God would open this heavenly storehouse, release manna for the people, and close it back up. In several writings from around Jesus' day that we have from outside the Bible, the people expected these storehouses to one day be reopened again during the time of Messiah. So we read in a Jewish commentary on the Exodus from before Jesus' time, as the first redeemer, Moses, caused manna to descend, so will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend. So they are expecting when Messiah comes for these great heavenly storehouses to be reopened again as they were for the people in the wilderness. But while they might have had some real messianic expectation in their line of questioning from Jesus here, you know, we trusted and believed Moses, but give us a sign so that we can trust you as the latter redeemer, as the new Moses, Give us a sign, even though the day before Jesus had given them a sign, providing food, bread, and fish for them, Jesus is now going to lift their eyes from their guts, from their stomachs, to God. And he says to them in 32 and 33, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. First of all, you should have never been trusting in Moses. He was not the redeemer and provider for your fathers in the wilderness. It was God. And secondly, stop paying so much attention to the manna, that bread from heaven. While it was remarkable and just a, a miraculous provision from God. It was bread daily falling from heaven. God providing just enough for the people each day for their needs. Jesus says this really wasn't the, the bread from heaven. Manna existed in the first place to prepare your hearts and your understanding for the true bread of heaven. And that heavenly bread, the true bread, isn't something that's yeasty and starchy that has crust on it. The true bread of heaven is a person. And that true bread not only feeds Israel, but he feeds the entire world. And the people are still tracking with him for the most part. Perhaps a little confusing and surprising, Jesus' teaching is, but they're mostly still right there with him. Let's, let's refresh the conversation so far. So we need to pursue heavenly food that doesn't spoil. Check. What must we do to earn this bread? Uh, no, no, you, you can't earn it. You must just believe in the one whom God has sent. Okay, check. We can do that. We can believe in God's prophet who he has sent to lead his people. But how can we know that you're God's man? Can you do the signs of Moses? Uh, Jesus says, I'm not really even going to answer that. But because the physical signs of Moses were given in the first place to prepare for a greater reality, believe in the true bread who is a person who comes down from heaven. Okay, check. We're still right there with you. Verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Where's this person that has come down from heaven? Point us to him so that we can be satisfied in him always. And this gets us to Jesus' third section of teaching where Jesus is going to start making it get a little bit warmer with a shocking teaching. Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, The bread is a person, and I'm the bread. I am the bread of life, the bread who has come down from heaven and will satisfy you always. And this is the first of the so-called seven I am statements of John's gospel, where Jesus will take an Old Testament thing or a concept and apply it directly to himself. You thought the manna was bread from heaven which gave life. You thought this daily bread was the contents of God's heavenly storehouses, but you have no idea. I was the bread. I am the bread. And that manna was pointing to me all along. You see, Jim Carrey is right. Every day we go about on little joy hunts, little searches for joy and satisfaction, searching here and there from jobs and money, from recognition and sex. And if we haven't rested in Christ and we're honest with ourselves, each night we can go to sleep singing the words from Bono and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Jesus is saying, stop looking. Stop searching. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If indeed God has created us to find the most amount of joy possible in himself, then it certainly makes sense that we would be unsatisfied in things that are other and lesser than him, right? Two chapters before, Jesus told the woman at the well that he would drive away her thirst. And now he tells the crowd that he will drive away their hunger as well. Jesus actually is offering a full belly, just not the kind of full belly that we were asking him for, a full belly that actually doesn't get hungry again. Now, we need to be careful here in our evangelism, and we need to be careful here in the way we present testimonies to avoid saying something like, I had all of these problems in my life. I had all this problem with drugs and alcohol, with pride and lust, with materialism and recognition, and then I came to Jesus and all those problems went away for the rest of my life, right? There is something that's true of what we watched at the beginning of this service about freedom from those things. But as long as we're still in our flesh, our appetites will never be fully sanctified. From time to time, we will be convinced that there are things that are more joy-giving and that are more satisfying than Christ. But his true followers will be in an ever-moving direction of greater joy and greater satisfaction in the Creator rather than his created things. The problem is, as Jesus so bluntly puts it in verse 36, is that the majority of this crowd listening to Jesus sees him and hears him, and yet they don't believe. Does this mean that God's plan of creating people who would find their ultimate amount of joy in himself is failing? Verse 37 and 38, no. All of those that God has given to the Son will come to him, will rest in him, 
Verse 39, he will lose nothing that the Father has given to him. And on the last day, Jesus will raise up all that the Father has given to him to new life. Jesus' mission does not depend upon the right response of this crowd. But who is it that he will raise up? Who is it that the Father has given to him? Verse 40, everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And if you know the gospel according to John very well, another teaching of Jesus's actually about the time of Moses in the wilderness should be ringing around in your ears. In chapter 3, after Jesus explains to Nicodemus that he must be born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This, of course, is referring to that really strange story in Numbers 21 where the people were plagued by venomous snakes because of their wickedness. Everyone is dying by these snake bites. So Moses makes a bronze serpent, the very symbol of the curse, and he puts it on a pole and he raises it up, and if the people will fix their eyes on this bronze serpent as their only hope of life, they will live. Just as the the manna points us and prepares us for Jesus, so does this bronze serpent. The place of curse becoming our place of life. Those who fix their eyes upon it will have life. But what is Jesus really meaning? What what does it actually mean to look on him? Certainly for us today who cannot see him. What does it mean to believe in him? Just that he existed? Just that he was a, a great prophet who could do amazing miracles? Just that just to rightly believe that he was God's son. We'll see what he means in just a moment, but for now it sure looks like belief goes right alongside this bread of life theme. So Jesus finishes his sentence, or perhaps even in the midst of this teaching about him being the one who has come down from heaven, and the crowd starts to grumble. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled. By the way, a very intentional word, isn't it? just as their fathers grumbled in the wilderness when they got their manna. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? What is he talking about, come down from heaven? We know where he came from. Mary's his mom. What is he even talking about? And then interestingly, Jesus doesn't even try to defend his heavenly origin. But he then just goes right again at their hard hearts. While their eyes have seen the mighty works of God from Jesus, while their ears have heard his teaching, which has authority unlike the scribes, they still don't believe. They still don't understand. As Mark writes, they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing by providing bread for them, what he was teaching them about a greater spiritual reality. So he just goes right at their unbelief. And while this last section has certainly been shocking, he claims that not only is he from heaven, but he is actually the life-giving content of the the heavenly storehouses. Beginning in verse 47, Jesus is going to drop a real bomb with a divisive teaching. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Obviously, the manna that your fathers ate wasn't true bread. It wasn't the true bread of life. It couldn't sustain them. They had to eat it every day. And ultimately, they still died from it. It was CC's, right? But the true bread of life is Jesus. And then the real divisive part. To live, you must eat that bread, which is my flesh. Now, if the crowd was grumbling before, now they are incensed. The Jews, 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What in the world does he mean? But rather than like backtracking, like Jesus maybe said something he didn't quite mean to say, and he's realizing they're getting really angry, and he needs to like backtrack and cover what he's just said, he then makes it even worse. <laughs> he really ups the ante. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I, said to you, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now this text is as confusing for us today as it was for the Jews that day in Capernaum. It seems like Jesus is advocating cannibalism and vampirism, right? Eat my flesh and drink my blood, everybody. Ready? Go. <laughs> uh, but the reason that this is so divisive is not just because it's kind of weird and seemingly kind of gross, but it's because the Jews who, with a proper understanding of the Old Testament law, they would have been abhorred by what Jesus has just prescribed for them. The drinking of blood was specifically forbidden by the law. And eating someone's flesh is something that only the most wicked of the Gentile nations have done throughout the Old Testament. Not to mention the fact that even touching a dead body would mean that you'd have to be removed from the camp for a week so that you could be washed and ritually brought back in because you were so unclean. For millennia, the Jews have been conditioned by God to be disgusted and repelled by death, by blood. And then here comes Jesus saying that place of disgusting abhorrence, that place of death and blood, is actually the place of your life. But how? What does he mean? Were his disciples to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood? And if so, what does that mean for us today, as the Lord Jesus has now ascended into heaven? I think we'll understand this passage if we think of Jesus' teaching as a metaphorical explanation of what it means to believe in and follow Jesus. John Calvin says that Jesus employs metaphors adapted to the circumstances in which his sermon is delivered. So, if we go way back to verse 27, where Jesus explains, Hey, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Calvin says this, 
If food had not been mentioned, remember, they came to him wanting another bread miracle. Jesus would have said, look, people, you, you ought to lay aside anxiety about the world and strive to obtain heavenly life. But since they come to him speaking about food, Calvin says Christ presents his sermon in a metaphorical dress and gives the name of food to everything that belongs to the newness of life. So since Jesus is already preaching about food and true bread, he metaphorically makes application about himself, about eating and drinking. In fact, we might say that verse 54 is a metaphorical explanation of what we've already read in verse 40. Let's look at these two verses. Verse 54, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now compare that with verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now if this is right, if 54 is some metaphorical explanation about what we've already seen about belief in the Son, then what Jesus is saying, that what is required for eternal life is a deep and digesting belief in what Jesus has done and said. And Jesus' words are important. With Jesus' bread metaphor, he could be making another Passover wilderness reference where Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 8, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the words of the Lord and certainly the words of Jesus. Peter will say as much later in the chapter in verse 68. Peter says, you have the words of eternal life, perhaps giving us an understanding of what Jesus is talking about by eating him. Hearing his words, and not just the red letters that we might find in some of our Bibles, in the Gospels, but as the divine author, we hear Jesus' words from the whole of Scripture and we eat them, ingesting, digesting, being nourished by, being satisfied by them as the way to life. But of course, there is a secondary and implied meaning of this text for we Christians on this side of the cross. There's a reason why we decided upon this text for a Lord's Supper service. By actually eating bread and drinking from the cup, we were reminded of Jesus' explaining to his, his disciples that the bread is his body broken for us, and the wine is his blood shed for us. There's a sense in which, when we eat and drink, that we're reminded that Jesus actually is true food and true drink. It's as if he's saying that every time we eat and drink any food or drink, let alone this bread and this cup. Even, we should think anytime we eat of the greater and higher spiritual reality to which it points. Each time we sit down for dinner, we should be reminded, reminded that we need this meal that we are about to eat for nourishment, for sustenance, for survival, for life. But how much more so with Jesus, the true food, the true drink, and certainly at this monthly meal, we have a real and visceral way to taste and see that the Lord is good. The bread and juice on our lips should be an intense 
and spiritual reminder that without Christ, we have no nourishment. We have no sustenance. We have no survival. We have no life. But we should also be careful in making direct applications from John 6 to the Lord's Supper, as many throughout the centuries have. No doubt, because of the amount of you in this room who have grown up in the Catholic Church, you've heard this passage taught as Jesus' explanation for communion given at the Mass. Perhaps even when you hear or when you heard this evening, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Perhaps the first thing you thought of was the taking of communion. This verse is one of the chief reasons why Catholic theology holds to transubstantiation, that the wafer actually becomes the real body of Christ, the actual real flesh of Christ, and that the wine actually becomes the real blood of Christ. Because if we're drawing a straight line from John 6 to the Lord's Supper, we kind of need to make that logical move, don't we? You have to eat the body of Christ and you have to drink the blood of Christ to have life. That's what he says. But there are a couple reasons not to make such a direct move from John to communion. The first being that John uses the word flesh and blood here rather than the words body and blood, which are all over the New Testament in describing the Lord's Supper. That sounds really insignificant and like pretty, not, not like a big issue. But I actually think it is. The gospel, this gospel, the gospel according to John, is one of the latest books that we have written in the New Testament. And surely John was aware of the other gospel accounts and the writings of Paul, where they all the time refer to the body and blood given at the Lord's Supper. If John didn't want us to miss from John 6 that Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper, he surely would have dropped more clear breadcrumbs, pardon the pun, Perhaps what John is doing is not pointing forward to the Lord's Supper, but pointing back to his first chapter where Jesus was God incarnate from eternity past, but took on flesh and became a man to live for us and die for us. But also, another reason why we shouldn't make a direct move and draw a straight line to the Lord's Supper from John 6 is that if all Jesus required was a ritualistic taking of weekly communion, then this verse stands in stark contrast to verse 40, right? Where Jesus says, you must look on me, believe in me, and then you have eternal life. If all that's required is taking and eating of Jesus' body and drinking his blood, then belief and faith is not required, is it? Jesus doesn't provide miraculous signs just so that he can give bread, just so that he can fill tummies temporarily. Jesus does not settle for just giving us stuff and satisfying our temporary appetites. He has much bigger plans and much bigger aspirations for our souls. He gives us not stuff, but he gives us himself. Isaiah 55 certainly comes to mind in this entire passage when God says through Isaiah, Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
Isaiah preached to the people then, and now Jesus is preaching to the people now. Why do you keep looking for things that will continually leave you empty when real food is offered? Come to me, hear my words, and enter into the covenant that God has made with David, the covenant of David's greater son who will reign on the throne eternally. Come, buy without money. So this is the question that was posed to the disciples and is posed to us as well. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor in Philadelphia for many, many decades, once asked his people this. Is he as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing for that many people, he is much less. Boyce makes what initially sounds like a preposterous claim. That to many of us, a hamburger and french fries is more useful, real, and satisfying than Jesus. But if we're really honest with ourselves, I'm sure that there would be many in this room that that wouldn't be all that preposterous. Jesus offers life through the deep digestion of his words, consuming them and consuming his work on our behalf. Apart from him, there is no life, only death. This is divisive now, certainly. Only in Christ is there life. Apart from him, there is death. But it was divisive then as well. Verse 60 and on. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Their fathers grumbled over God's provision of bread in the wilderness, and now they would grumble over God's provision of bread in Galilee. But even more than that, they were now offended by him. Offended by blood. Offended by death. But Jesus says, if you're offended now, just wait. Just as the bread of life came down from heaven, I will ascend there again. Verse 62 And John and Jesus are using ascending here in a pretty clever way. We've already seen Jesus say that like the bronze serpent, he will be lifted up. And we read that just after in John chapter 3 about Jesus' descending and ascending. Jesus seems to be talking about his ascending move back to heaven, but this cannot first happen unless he is first lifted up. And for John, being the Son of Man being lifted up, ascending onto the cross, being lifted up, is just repeated over and over and over. Jesus' Jesus's mission, after he has descended to earth, is to ascend back to his Father, but he cannot first get there until he first ascends to the cross. And this would prove to be the most ultimate offense to the Jews, a crucified Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the greater prophet Moses, the greater son of David, 
lifted up at the place of God's cursing. And yet it's exactly because of this that he can offer us life in the first place. The cross of Christ is is like a giant lightning rod absorbing the wrath and electricity of God that is rightfully due us because of our rebellion. But it is absorbed and provides safety for those who are under it. Jesus cannot ascend to heaven in victory over sin and death unless he first ascends to the place of victory, to the place of his death, to the place of the absorption of God's wrath where Jesus stands in the place of sinners. But he stands in the place for sinners for only those who are standing and looking at him for their only place of hope. Only for those who are eating and drinking him, tasting and seeing that he's good, who depend on him for nourishment and life. And verse 66 tells us that this was so hard, this was so offensive to many of his so-called disciples who were distinct from the twelve, the disciples of the crowd that we don't know of and we probably never hear from again. Many of them turned back and no longer walked with him. They were confident in their ability to please God. They were stubborn, stubborn to recognize their need, to recognize their unsatisfied appetites. They were unwilling to come. They were unwilling to hear. They were unwilling to come and dine upon the words and work of Christ on their behalf. And after asking the twelve if they will leave also, Peter replies to Jesus in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have given us hard words. We don't quite understand what you mean. But you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Sometimes our fleshly appetites deceive us into seeking satisfaction in things other than Christ. But for those who are in Christ, like Peter, we know that he is the place of life. He is the Holy One of God. He is the Christ. Will you feast on him? Will you taste and see that he is good? Just as Israel, a nation of sojourners who were led out of slavery and are being led to the place of God's dwelling, were nourished and sustained by God from bread from heaven, we too, a nation of sojourners on a journey out of slavery to the place and land of God's dwelling, we are nourished and sustained by God by the true bread from heaven. Will you consume these words of Christ? Will you dwell and digest and let the work of Christ move to your deepest part of your soul, of your being? Will you taste and see that he is good?